100 no's. I went directly to PE firms. You're too small. You're not profitable enough. We don't like the space. And, you know, again, so I think that just persevering through, ended up with a couple of term sheets, raised money, and we ended up, I mean, then amazingly, we were 10 million in revenues at that point. You know, with 25 people, we're 200 million in revenues and 500 people today. And I'd say it wouldn't have happened without capital. Wow. It wouldn't have happened if I hadn't been used to hearing no and saying, you know what? That no is means I'm one step closer to yes. Want to boost your productivity and decision-making? Get vital insights from each episode delivered directly to your inbox. A great resource whether you've listened to the episode or not. Go to benfanning.com slash insight. Welcome back to Lead the Team with number one best-selling author and in-demand corporate trainer, Ben Fanning. On this podcast, the world's most innovative senior leaders share their top success strategies to motivate your direct reports, cultivate your top leaders, and accelerate your career. Let's get started. Here's Ben. Everybody, welcome back to Lead the Team. We've got a phone in store for you today with Larry Hartman, who's the CEO of ZRG Partners one of the fastest growing mid-sized global executive search firms in the industry. Now, Larry is a results-driven leader with a broad business background in executive search as well as in the industry. And as CEO, Larry's responsible for driving overall growth, client engagement, and profitability, of course, for the firm. A key focus for him is engaging and recruiting top talent to join the firm as well as selectively pursuing additional acquisitions that fit the ZRG culture. Now, prior to ZRG, back in 2002, Larry was actually founder of Rockford Industries, a NASDAQ-traded commercial lending business that supported the medical device market. Now, while at Rockford, the firm went from pure startup, which we're going to dig into here, to an Inc. 500 recognized growth firm through IPO and ultimately a sale to American Express, which I know you've heard of. Now, this experience provided a unique view of growing a business, raising capital, and hiring talent through virtually all business stages. And after the sale, Larry was EVP with American Express for three years, and Larry has served on many boards, some some very interesting perspective series, a graduate the California State University at Fullerton Business School. Larry, welcome to the show, sir. Good to be here, Ben. Thank you. So although you're leading a big company now, let's rewind the clock a little bit, jump into your entrepreneurial roots. What led you back in the day to becoming an entrepreneur? Yeah, it's a good question, Ben. I, I don't know. I didn't set out in life to start companies, but you know, early on in my my upbringing, uh, I just think back to you know, I was a high school kid, grew up in a conservative Southern California family. My dad was an accountant, my mom was a church secretary, and um, they just didn't spend a lot of money. So I remember wanting to buy a polo shirt. They shopped at J.C. Penney's, and I wanted to, I wanted some of the stuff the other kids had. And they said, "Well, you go get a job if you want to do that." So ended up in high school getting an inside sales job and started making like three times what anybody else made that I knew all through high school. Yeah. Work inside sales and into college. 
Um, I ran a call center and then I did outside sales. And I, I tell the story when I finally graduated college and it took me about six years because I was working full time. Um, I actually owned a condo. I drove a Turbo Z. And like back in 1985, I made like $90,000 as a college kid. And it was like I graduated. And now to go get a job, it's like I can't go get an entry level, you know, marketing or sales job. And so it led me to founding my first business, which was Rockford Industries. So it was kind of by accident from parents that just kind of said, hey, if you want stuff, go work. And I, and I found some skills I had. Wow. So kudos to your parents uh, for saying, hey, you want that? And by the way, those polo shirts, I remember them back in the day, still around, of course, and they ain't cheap, especially no, back then. No. So, yeah, exactly. like, yeah, you want your polo shirt, you go get it yourself. And so literally you heard this. Well, some people might have said, well, you know, I'm just – the polo shirts just ain't for me. I'm not going to get it. I'll get something else. But it sounds like you interpreted this moment as a call to action. Like, yeah, exactly. And it was, how am it was I going to do this? How am I going to get this thing? No, and my parents were hardworking people. My dad, I mean, they had two jobs. They owned the coin laundromat at night. They would go clean and they worked during the day. So it wasn't that I felt like they should spend money on me. I just felt like, okay, if I want stuff, I'm going to have to go figure out how to make, make a living and ended up finding out I had skills in, in the you know sales area, which, you know, paid a whole lot more than my friends were making, you know, doing their, their jobs while they were going to school. So, yeah, it's one of those blessings, right, that ended up giving me some work ethic. So why in the world inside sales? Because that is a brutal thing to get going as your first job in high school. I mean, what was it about that that, that attracted you? The people made money. And then I remember coming home and my mom said, that's the worst job in the world. You'll never last two weeks. I was like, well, I don't know. It seemed okay. And so it just, you know, it, to me, it was a lot easier than manual labor. I grew up having to mow our lawn as a kid every day as my allowance. I hated it. And so I was like, you know, I don't want to do manual labor. I want to find a way to make money with, uh, you know, with my other skills. So it just, you know, it was work. It wasn't fun, but it ended up developing some skills that I think it and as you know, Ben, in almost every business, there's a sales aspect to every business out there. And if you're not willing to put the hard work in, a lot of times you're not going to create the outcomes you want. So I think it's a great foundation. So sales skills, are these, do you believe sales skills are more nature or nurture? That's a, yeah, that's a good question. I think there's probably... 60, 70% is probably your nature. Like, can you tolerate rejection? Can you, you know, make the 50, 70 calls? Can you, you know, be, be committed to something? So I think there's certain people that just have those, you know, the nature gives them with what it takes. Right. Um, and then I think there is that part, you can develop skills that make you better at it, but certainly there are people that, you know, should never be in a sales role. Right. And there's some that it's just natural to. So I want to point out to the listener something you just said that I thought was profound. So you didn't say charisma. You didn't say uh, a nice personality. You said uh, dealing with rejection. Yeah. Basically. Yeah. Taking the nose. And so I think a lot of people who are not in sales were considering it. That's not where their mind went. Tell us a little bit more about your philosophy when it comes to dealing with the nose as a salesperson or really any person in 
Yeah. In their career. Well, yeah, and I and I'll, and I'll carry it forward. I mean, you, when you start off in inside sales, you get you know, hundred no's for every one possible yes, and you've got to bang out, make calls, and be persistent. You know, later on, as I went into other businesses and I was in the you know, commercial lending area, you know, I only get twenty no's for every yes, and then in recruiting, you can only get five no's for every yes. It got easier and easier, but I think if you didn't know what hard was it doesn't make it seem as easy as you get into things that are, you know, that customers, you know, really want and need. So I think it's a great foundation for anybody in, in their young, in their career, they have an interest, you know, the, the sales side to, to put the hard work in to see what it takes. And, you know, you'll find ways to improve the numbers by just having better products to solve bigger problems, right? It gets to be, you know, I think mm-hmm. easier as you, as you get smarter later on in life. Yeah, uh, so much wisdom in that, and it's yeah. You probably thought the, this this recruiting thing was one of the easiest jobs you'd ever had if you'd been getting a hundred taking a hundred nos. And I think I think people do give up too quickly. And I mean, for me, I didn't really have sales training until I got into sales, probably middle of my career, and it totally clicked for me. Like I really thought sales was about just being a great person, being nice, being interested, asking the right questions. And of course, that's part of the process. But this idea in our career in general, and I want all the leaders to recognize, I mean, it's about like resilience, like Larry's talking about here, keeping going. And and I think our success as leaders, I'd be curious your take on this, Larry. Um, you know, you, I like to kind of start out early in your career walking us through that. And how you kept going uh, in those situations uh, in sales and getting the nose. What's your message to leaders who want to instill that mindset in their teams? Well, I think it comes from the kind of people you hire, right? I mean, to me, that that gets down to, you know, if you're in a business that is a you know, a sales-driven business, which I've which I've been in. Both of my businesses were businesses that competed with bigger, better competitors that we had to you know outsell and outdeliver. Mm-hmm. And then so you create, in essence, a sales culture, a customer culture. And so I think that you know, finding people that have sold an underdog story, finding people that have been able to sell against mm-hmm. the bigger brands, mm-hmm. um, I, I think is probably the step to say bring the right people in. And I saw the difference when I took my first business, which was, you know, Rockford Industries. And we we lent money to doctors and hospitals and we competed against big banks, the Bank of America's, the GE mm-hmm. Capitals. All of a sudden, when American Express bought our business, it got to be too easy. I remember taking clients to like a Knicks game and there was the American Express logo everywhere and they were a sponsor. And like, you know, when you when you have a brand and you have that kind of a big name, the life's a whole lot easier. So I always found that people that could sell without a brand, people that could sell on service on, mm-hmm. and on on those things, you know, could sell easily once you had a brand. Wow. I hadn't really thought about it that way. But yeah, looking for people that could sell, like you use the word underdog. Yeah. Uh, which I like that. You know, they, people can sell on the underdog story. You know, we're not the big, the big brand in the room. And then once you, they, they kind of go through that process of learning how to do that and honing their skills, then you, then you pair them with the big brand. It's, it's an unbeatable combination. It sounds like. It is. It is. 
So yeah, and I, yeah, and I think there's that I've you know had that talk on entrepreneurship that there's you know there's people that invent things and create amazing new ideas, right? I, I'm someone who's just taken an existing idea, competed against the big guys, and found a sub niche to do better in against big people. I think that's entrepreneurship as well. You don't have to invent something new; you have to do something slightly better, and then just scale it through bringing in great people and inspiring and leading. And your question about leadership of create a vision, lead people, have people see where you're going and you can create great businesses that way. When you, when you take that entrepreneurial idea and that mindset, and now you're running a bigger company now and you're, you know, you guys are working with bigger companies too, taking the word entrepreneurial and trying to instill that in a company that's big, I guess it's the intra. Some people call it intrapreneurial. Maybe there's some other terms around that. But what do you, what do you, what, what advice do you have for leaders who would like to foster that kind of entrepreneurial superpower in employees on their team or in a bigger company? Yeah, so I, I'd say it starts with. You know, you've got to have a culture that's client-centered, that you're focused in in just a passionate way about serving your client and being flexible and competitive to do that, right? And I think when you're an underdog, an entrepreneurial company competing against companies with more resources, you've got to be scrappy. Mm. You've got to be responsive, right? So, so I think that's number one when it comes to say, if you look at people that are you know around client-centered environments, that they'll do anything to make the client happy. That that's the foundation. And then leadership-wise, and again, it may be different styles, but what I've seen is when you're growing a small company into a mid-sized to a larger company, you know, I've always had a servant leadership. A mantra that it is not about ego. You know, it's about building a team, you know, showing the team through hands on that you're at their side, servant leadership, that, you mm-hmm. know, you can garner loyalty for people to stay with you through those early stages and, and they embrace, you know, the leadership style. So to me, it's servant leadership as the, as, as the way a leader would, would make that transition for me has worked. Yeah. I mean, if you're, if you're a leader who's willing to get in the weeds with people, and make those calls with them, you know, just show that you're not just someone who's operating at the board level or at the ivory tower level, exactly. but you're willing to get in there. It makes a big difference because they're like, man, if he's willing to do it and he's got to that level, then I mean, that, that I can remember when I was in field sales way back early in my, earlier in my career, man. And when our, our sales leader got in the weeds with us and he's like, okay, it's, it's cold call day. Basically. And we'd sit yeah. in there dialing for dollars and the fact that he was doing it too. And he would pull out a bottle of whiskey at the end of the day. That's <laughs> all shots. Yeah. And I can remember he would go around, he'd say fanning, you know, like this, he said, fanning, how many no's did you get today? So he never asked me never about how many yeses. Yeah. All he cared about was if we were getting those because he knew, to your point earlier, if we were getting those, we were learning and or eventually the numbers would uh, play in our favor. 
hundred percent. And I had that same conversation with my team and it's like, you know, I'll hear about, we lost this pitch to a competitor. Say so you didn't lose. You were up to bat. You won. And if you're up to mm, bat, you're going to win one out of three. And so as long as you're getting up to bat, that's all you can control beyond that. Keep getting up to bat. And it's, you know, again, it's ironic how that just goes back to early days of, you know, when I'm a 16 year old kid making a hundred cold calls a day to thinking about the same philosophies as you're trying to, you know, we're out trying to close, you know, fortune 500 clients on million dollar engagements. You know, it's the same philosophies. Well, I like that metaphor. And I think the leaders listening to this can, can, can use that at bats at bats and baseball. I mean, batting averages, I mean, aren't that good. I mean, it's just not, you know, if you're batting 300, I mean, you're doing great. Right. Yeah. And so I think that's a great metaphor for people to, to, for people to use. And I liked what you said too, Larry, about in these situations where you're getting those and you've got to keep going. The fact that you got to focus on what you can control. And like you said, you can control your at bats. And so focus your team's effort on the things that they can control that lead to winning versus just beating them up for winning. And I've been on both teams where we were beat up for not winning. And I've had ones where we're beat up for, hey, you're not getting enough at bats. Yeah. And when I was, when the focus was on not getting enough at bats, uh, I was way more successful because yeah. I was able to, 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 to basically have a more productive conversations with myself and with the team versus to be honest, we're getting beating up for not winning. You end up just going to happy hour and calling it a day and complaining. So it's just a yeah. focus difference. Yeah. No, 100% agree. And that's, I think, keeps people encouraged when they can easily get discouraged, right? I mean, so if you focus on what you can control, which are your numbers, the activities every day, the things that you can do, the outcomes you don't always know, but you do know what, you know, what you can impact every day. And it, and it keeps people encouraged, keeps people focused on the prize. So I'm going to ask you to narrow all, all this down a little bit and ask you this question. What's one trait you wish you could instill in every employee? And why do you think it's so important? Well, yeah, and I go back to that customer centricity. I mean, I think, you know, when you look across an organization, you have people at all different levels and it's a job for them, right? Some of them, it's a passion. Some of them, it's, you know, our, our high income earners, others are support mm -hmm. staff. But I think if, the, if, if people are focused on the mission of serving a client, creating a great company, serving clients, it creates the outcomes, right? It creates it creates the career yep. paths. It creates advancement. So I think it's that part about it's not a job, right? I mean, I think if people come in and it, it's just, I'm here to do a task. No, your task is part of a bigger process mm. that serves a need to keep a client happy. And then I think when people understand what they do and how it fits into that, it makes their every day more, more important. And so to me, it's that I, I think understanding the bigger mission to the point of how does it create this great customer experience and customer and how you take market share from competitors? And when, when everyone in an organization gets that, they, they stay engaged and they're happy. And when they don't, you know, you have turnover, you have job dissatisfaction. Yeah. I, another good point there. I just, you know, for so many employees, they get so bogged down in their own little task and sort of task isolation. 
And that can be motivating maybe if you've got like a certain metric. And I'm, since we've kind of stayed in, talk, talked a lot about the sales realm, uh, sticking with that for a second, like you've got to make this many sales calls or get this many deals done or whatnot. But when you see that, hey, there's a bigger picture, like you're saying, wait, I'm trying to, we're trying to get a service that's going to solve a big problem that our customer has. Suddenly it impacts your conversations. It impacts what time you wake up in the morning, how you come to work, how you present yourself to the customer, the questions you ask. And uh, I just think it's just a better way to live life and, and to live your career if you understand the bigger picture. And I, so I think two sort of twofold. One, I think about it from the, the leader. The leader needs to impart this to their team. But if you're listening and you're not really sure how your role or your team fits in the bigger picture, man, that's a great conversation to have. It is. And I think you're dead on. It's the leader's responsibility. And I think to have everyone understand how does their piece fit within the bigger puzzle that brings meaning to the day. Right. And, and I think that's the leader's role. And I think the other part of that is this, you know, our incentives align so that everybody is feeling that right. And certainly, you know, for us, you know, now we're in a private equity backed environment as ZRG, you know, we have broad equity incentives where people understand growth is good, that creating a bigger company with higher value creates, you know, the, the rewards that, you know, mm-hmm. capitalism, you know, the best of capitalism shines, right. When everybody's incented to create a great outcome. So I think, you know, if you the leader does it the right way, right. And then you have the right incentive structures. I think that's when you get the alignment that you get a company you know, moving in the right way. Get a simple tool to approximate your cost of turnover in 10 seconds or less. Right now, go to benfanning.com slash turnover. Did you know the average cost of turnover is $235,975 per employee per year? If you're like most leaders, you don't know your number. Go to benfanning.com slash turnover right now and download this simple tool to start getting a handle on this catastrophic cost. So let's talk about the flip side of this. We talk, let's talk about when things are, are, are more of a struggle. You know, what, what are the mistakes? Because you work with a lot, work with a lot of different companies. And, uh, what are the mistakes you see leaders making out there when it comes to incentivizing their employees or dealing with turnover and whatnot? Yeah, so I'd start with this. I mean, you know, in reality, you know, people don't work for companies, they work for people. And so, you know, I think when you have turnover, it, it's, you know, it's typically it's their their boss, the person they report to has not created the right, you know, the right environment for that person to, to thrive. Um, and so I think the first thing is saying, hey, a leader has the responsibility to be a shepherd of the sheep, right? And, and to make sure that they're engaged on that side. And so I think to me, that's that's number one. When I see turnover, you know, it's, it's you know, usually going to come down if they love their boss, it's very hard for them to leave, right? Um, and so that that to me is probably number one on that list. Yeah, that's a, that's an important one to start there. That the 
And then I think you had to be in the right role. And I know you talk a lot about job satisfaction and, you know, getting fulfillment out of your role, but you got to be in the right role to fit your skills, right? So, you know, there is turnover and dissatisfaction if you have someone in the wrong role. And I think companies are doing a better job now than they did 10 years ago at trying to match someone's skills, competencies, you know, using assessment tools to say, what is someone's natural inclinations that would fit within success mm-hmm. in a role, right? And so, you well, know, you put an engineer in a sales role, it's going to be a failure. If you put a salesperson in an engineering role, it's going to be a failure. You know, so to me, there's that other part of that to say, you know, both a company and an individual have to do a good job to say, would I be successful in this role? I have this, that discussion with candidates a lot around, mm. you know, hey, I've got this opportunity. It sounds great. So well, are you going to be successful in that role? Does it fit what you're going to be good at? Because yes, it's a great you know, opportunity to be a C-suite leader. But if you don't have what's needed, you're going to fail and it's not going to work out. So does it match up to what you're good at? Right. And, and so mm-hmm. um, I think that's a big element of, of kind of self-evaluation and being really, I, I think, you know, honest with yourself. Of where are your strengths and will your strengths play to a role from a candidate side? So without including names, what's your most colorful story of when someone quit or was fired? <laughs> oh, boy. You know, it's almost it's almost too many, you know, I mean, we're in the recruiting business. So we get lots of stories from, Mm. you know, from the client side. And um, I have to think about that one, Ben, in terms of, um, you know, the, 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 the firing side, but we, you know, we've certainly, you know, had lots of cases and then it's, it's a sad case when people, you know, put things on their resume that just aren't true. And you think today, why would somebody list the graduating from a college they didn't go to? Why would they do things oh. that in today's world are, are not there? But, you know, I, I, I think it's probably been just, you know, people need to be careful with social media today. We've had candidates that they do a social media check and, mm-hmm. you know, stuff comes up that is embarrassing or controversial and you know they end up not getting a job or, or getting released and you know it's 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 wow. those kind of things you know can you any shake favorite your favorite one or some <laughs> any any kind of post that uh got someone taken off a list <sighs> or taken out of the interview um no, I've just, you know, thought about people that come in, you know, and again, with the specific, very strong political views, stating those views about what they believe. Mm-hmm. And, you know, again, my recommendation to people is, you know what, half 50% of the U.S. believes one way, 50% believes another way, if you look at the last election. So by putting a strong statement out that you're highly conservative or highly liberal means yeah. you've got a 50% chance of connecting to the person you're with and that you should set aside your political beliefs that work is work, right? And so yeah, that's a good point. Those because if you're like a senior leader, you don't know who's going to be on your team. Yeah. And I mean, no one wants their boss ram jamming political views different than theirs on their autumn. And I mean, work needs to be focused on what brings us together, not what separates us. And Lord knows you can, you can focus on either one of them. Just take your pick, but why not choose if you're the leader to focus on the things that bring us together, which often, you know, as we've talked about this, the, the common language is profitability. 
and grow. It is. It is. And we tell, you know, I mean, it, this to me is, a, you know, you've got people very passionate about causes, but when it comes to your career, you need to be Switzerland, right? I mean, there, there's no reason that, you know, that, that the workplace is where you have to have your personal, you know, stands that you're going to go do on your spare time. Work is work. And so, you know, again, if, if you're focused on, you know, maximizing yourself as a professional, then, then you know, that that's that seems to be, you know, where people yeah. run into lots of issues, you know, yeah. So some great insights there. So when's the time you had an unexpected twist or failure in your career and how did it lead to your success or growth on down the road? Yeah. So I go back, you know, to taking no's. So I'd say my first company, you know, we, we were... 10 years in business, we were about 80 million in revenues and we wanted to take the company public. And we would really, you know, had a passion, say we want to be a public company. And, and we literally, you know, had 200 no's from investment banks till finally we found one who said, we'd represent you. We like the story. A lot of them just said, you're too small. We don't like the wow. equipment leasing space. We don't like this. And literally, I mean, we could have given up. We didn't give up. And it was, you know, one of the, you know, one of the last ones said, no, we love the story. It's a great company. Ended up getting another underwriter, took us public. Um, and, and again, the second, you know, my business today in the recruiting space, you know, I went about seven years ago to raise private equity capital. And we were, again, at an inflection point of growth. And so I decided I'd be the investment banker because we were smaller, you know, $10 million revenue business at that time and 25 employees. And, mm. you know, again, hundred no's. I went directly to PE firms. You're too small. You're not profitable enough. We don't like the space. And, you know, again, so I think that just persevering through ended up with a couple of term sheets, raised money. And we ended up, I mean, been amazingly, and we were 10 million in revenues at that point, you know, with 25 people, we're 200 million in revenues and 500 people today. And I'd say it wouldn't have happened without capital. Wow. It wouldn't have happened if I I hadn't been used to hearing no and saying, you know what, that no is means I'm one step closer to yes. And I'm going to keep, keep plodding along. So I think that theme of say, you know, Mm. persistence uh, applies in so many ways. And I've seen it in terms of, you know, IPO, private equity capital, raising money for a company. It's, uh, you know, it's, it's been a foundation, I think of of myself being successful when if I would have quit halfway along the way, both times, I wouldn't have been. So what do you do in those moments or what have you tried in those moments where you're like, man, I'm determined to make this work, but I need a boost because sometimes the nose probably do catch up or you get, you're just getting one too many that week. You know, what do you, what do you do to kind of keep yourself moving forward in a, in a positive way? Well, I think there is that part you have to be realistic too, right? I mean, so I, and I have this conversation with other business owners of, you know, I mean, if you hit a point of, of 300 no's and that's it, it may be no. And, and I've had those experiences as well. But I think, you know, if you're getting feedback from trusted advisors that validate what you believe, mm. then I think you keep going. And so in my case, you know, I had people say, no, no, we, you have a profitable enough company, you have the right pieces, someone should fund this. I mean, it wasn't, I believed it, but it wasn't just my blind belief. And, um, you know, so I, I have, point. and I've, I've had others where, you know, I had a product that was trying to spin off to the venture world, the software product we developed. And we went down and, you know, talked to 60, 70 people. Finally, you know, they said, no, it isn't ready. And we ended up going a different direction. So I think having like, hey, I'll give it three months. 
I'll give it all I have at the end of that period. If, if the answer is no, I'll take no as an answer and I'll go try to improve it and come back in a year and try it again. So I think just having kind of in your mind, hey, this is my window of hard work to see if it's going to if I'm going to find a yes. And if the answer is no, you know, it's maybe not no, it's just not now you know, in a lot of cases. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think you, you hit something in there that you, you said something that really leapt out at me was you said getting feedback and then you said, listen, yeah. and I think that is important nuance for the people to listen. They're listening to the podcast today. You know, you know, Larry's talking about the success he had by keeping going, being persistent, not, a, not just taking a no and then quitting and keeping rolling, but you were listening and getting feedback along the way because it doesn't mean you're just blindly going straight ahead charging like a bull you're probably modifying and editing your offer the words you're using 100%. yeah you know as an entrepreneur you're probably testing a lot of stuff along the way so it's like you don't give up you're continuing to go but you can keep going because you understand your limits on how far you're you're willing to go with this and and what's the marketplace telling you yeah. And I think okay. having, you know, talking to three, four, five trusted advisors, people that have been there, just run your idea by them. What do you think? Where should I go? And I think back to how I raised our first set of capital for ZRG Partners. It was a investment banking guy who I sat, walked through my plan. So what do you think? He said, well, I think you should go to this type of Funder. I think here's a list of people you should go to. I think these are the people that would be interested. It was, you know, they 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 had me go after a, a sector called the mm. mes finance world, which I thought I was going to go right to private equity, and it's in between venture and private equity. It was the right call, and that was the group that funded me. And I and without that guidance, mm. I wouldn't have hit the right targets of where to go. And with that target, I went out and you know called eighty of them, right? But I got wisdom that I didn't have because you just you know people will give you guidance, and if you you need to listen to it as well, right? I mean, I think it's, it's, you know, there's people that are there will buy them a cup of coffee, tell them your idea. They'll give you their, their view and help you. So. So it sounds like you've put a lot of emphasis in your career too, on establishing a, a network. What's your, what's your advice for people in terms of the importance of, of creating a network, creating those trusted advisors, maybe they're sitting there today and they're thinking, you know what? The people that I really know are the people inside my company or that I like I went to college with, and they maybe not even in the same industry and they maybe haven't been as intentional about it. Uh, what what advice do you have for them on that front? Yeah, and I it's it's dead on. I mean, I think the my first company I took public, there was a similar company that was public that we had done some business with that I built a relationship with one of the senior guys who was kind of like a mentor and just had dinner with them, built a relationship. And and as we were talking about, hey, we're thinking of going public and here's where we're doing he says, you know, what do you think? His advice was that's the best thing you can do. It was the most amazing thing. I support it. Like, you know, so I, I think people, you know, yeah, I have this philosophy in relationships that you got to make deposits into people before you ask for withdrawals back out. So, you know, you can't always be asking, asking, asking. You, you mean, people don't want to just, you know, take a meeting where you're going to ask them to fund, you're going to ask them for that. But, you know, figuring mm-hmm. out what they're about, how can I help you? I mean, making a deposit in a relationship overall is, you know, you're, you're going to at some point in your career find a way to take a withdrawal if you made a deposit. And so I think 
think in the relationship building, absolutely build a network, mm-hmm. but do it in a way where you're not bothering or asking something from them, but you're, you know, they'll give you wisdom. They'll give you advice, but buy, buy them coffee, buy them lunch. Don't over, don't overstay the time that they, they may give you. If they give you a half hour for coffee at the end of half hour, say, listen, I know you're busy. Move on. I think, yeah. and I get asked that a lot. People want time. There's, you know, time is limited, right? So if people are respectful of that time, they'll give it to you. Yeah. That was some great advice there. I like a little mini playbook for people who want to start to build their network, especially with people that are maybe further down the road than they are. Uh, so starting to wind this up a little bit, and I'm, I'm curious from your standpoint too, what books, podcasts, or music do you recommend for someone who you'd know, like to be in the C-suite one day to found their own business and, or uh, maybe just, well, let's just say get in the C-suite. So there's a lot of ways you kind of go about it, but to really accelerate their career. Yeah, so I'd start back to something you said before. We talked, we started the conversation on you know nature or nurture on sales. Do you have it? I did a lot of work through the years of understanding the psychology of sales, mm-hmm. which led to marketing. Got a marketing degree. Uh, I remember early in my sales career, learning learning about neurolinguistic programming (NLP) and oh, how yeah. you yep. how you match body language, how you match phraseology to build trust and rapport with people, right? The person loves fishing. You're talking about, listen, let's get a line on this proposal. Like it was just like <laughs> things around like subtly. That's awesome. Yeah. How, how do you, you know, how, how do you create rapport in ways that people don't even know you're creating rapport? Like, so there's a ton of interesting stuff around to me. You start with, you know, the, you know, spin selling and, and, you know, the, um, you know, how, how to make friends and influence people, the relationship and selling skill side. And then on the leadership side, I, I love John Maxwell. I think Maxwell's got some great stuff on leadership that has been, you know, I, I think things that I've enjoyed. Um, on that side. And then I think just, you know, developing, you know, individual areas of expertise, you know, you know, in, in, in around what you're interested in, you know, whether it's marketing sales, whether it's, you know, in, in, in uh, innovation, there's, there's certainly great stuff out there that, that is you know, good to be always refreshing your thinking on it. So wrapping this up, Larry, what's your, uh, what's your parting thought for our listeners today? No, I think it's, you know, uh, well, well, first off, I think we've gone through a real change with this pandemic, right? I mean, and, and, you know, you and I talked offline a bit about remote work and, you know, that's been a blessing in some ways. And, you know, the world has gone to, you know, hey, people can work five days a week remote. But if you're younger in your career, you know, first 10, 15 years of your career, I don't know how you develop the skills, relationships and the goodwill you need without being around people in a meaningful way. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I, and I just give the example, my son got a job at Goldman Sachs during the pandemic and, and he was one of the few people showing up in the office. He got three promotions within 18 months because everybody else was choosing to work remote in the area that he was in with. It was, it was in the banking side. And so sometimes just showing up mm. shows difference. And, and there's so much learning and interaction that I think, you know, early in your career. And I, again, I say early, the first mm-hmm. 20 years of your career, there's learning, there's development, there's relationship building that show up, right? I mean, to me, later in life, you know, when, you, when you're further along, I mean, it's maybe easier to do that remotely, but I would say, I, I hope the world swings back. I think it will to, you know, three days a week in the office, maybe four again, because I think, you know, mm-hmm. we're, we're built for community. 
and isolation in general, I, I think is not going to provide the, the, the route of growth that individuals need. And certainly for yeah. companies, I think it's going to swing back in some way to probably a hybrid, but hopefully leaning more towards people being together. Yeah, that's a good point. And uh, I'm hearing this more and more on the show where people are like, yeah, you know, we, we had success by going remote and driving our business that way. But what's ended up happening is we've grown and we've got to bring in more people or we've had churn and brought in new people and they don't have all the relationships that people had earlier. So it's hard to, to really build those relationships virtually. It yeah, may be a bit easier to maintain somebody. Them. Yeah. I don't know how someone in my firm, you know, gets promoted without FaceTime, meeting time, management time. I mean, Zoom's fine for getting things done. It's not fine for standing out and showing your your full potential. So, you know, I think to me, that's something that just, you know, we're, we're, we'll see where this all settles out across the workforce, you know, in the coming year or two or three. But, you know, I think we will enter harder times ahead. I mean, it seems inevitable. We've got, you know, a dip in a recession and that, you know, the strongest are going to survive. And, you know, I think to that point, show up, you know, show up and, you know, it, it work is work, you know, it's, it's uh, put your, pay your dues. And, and uh, I think the rewards are going to be there. Yeah. And, and one of the things that comes up too, is doing, doing what you need to do to differentiate yourself. Yeah. Like your son's example, everyone's remote. Well, going the extra miles, just showing up in person and uh, he differentiated himself. And so whatever that needs to be to go the extra mile. Yeah. I mean, if, if and when, I mean, eventually there will be a recession. It could be soon. It could be later, whatever happens to be. But I mean, yeah, it just, just keep going and differentiating yourself and going the extra mile can be a great job protector situation. And, you, you know, when some people sort of head for the hills when things get tough, but also there's oper- still opportunities to get promoted. Uh, yeah. That. No, and I think just the other point I would leave is that, you know, communications to me is the most important route for growth. And it's not just it's verbal, it's PowerPoint, it's being able to express ideas in multiple ways, it's persuasion, it's all those things. And so, you know, sometimes, again, we talked a lot about just kind of a sales marketing background. That was just around understanding how to influence people. And that's influencing clients, it's influencing people, right? So Mm -hmm. I think if there's anything to invest in, and and I give this in terms of my talks at universities is the mm. most important differentiator from two equally qualified, skilled people is their ability to communicate. And it's across every meeting. It's great email. It's great face-to-face presentation. It's being able to speak. And again, I think in this remote world, that's becoming a little bit different. And so, you know, I think any development that people can do there, you know, is, is you know, to me, the differentiation of where you're going to be noticed and, and be able to, to be all you can be. Yeah, I've heard in many formats and different ways of saying it, but ultimately you're only as good as you can communicate. Yeah. You can be the best engineer, the best leader, the best CEO, but if you can't get your message across, you're always going to be limited. So, and that's a skill you can learn. Yeah. And it's not taught. I mean, it's not taught in, you know, in the early days coming out of school, kids don't know how to really build the whole communication suite of how they need to be doing that. So that those are things you learn, I think, again, through, you know, podcasts, videos, books, you know, through observation. And so, you know, I think it's it's interesting to be with the last couple of years of just remote work. I think that's it's been harder to differentiate. Right. And so um, it'll be interesting to see what uh, what's ahead for all of us. Well, that is a great place to end this on a well-communicated interview. (laughs) 
with Larry. Larry, thanks for coming on the show today. Thank you, Ben. It's a pleasure. If you're an executive at a crossroads in your career and thinking about quitting, do this before you do anything else. Head over to benfanning.com slash quit to receive a free signed copy of my number one best-selling book, The Quit Alternative, The Blueprint for Creating the Job You Love Without Quitting. You'll learn the critical questions you must answer before you make such an impactful decision. Go to benfanning.com slash quit to get this valuable resource for just the cost of shipping. Ben Fanning is a number one best-selling author, Inc. Magazine columnist, and CEO of the Fanning Group, an international consultancy and corporate training company. To learn how they can help your organization, go to benfanning.com.